Over a hundred warplanes in 24 hours, a record-breaking count as Beijing flexes its military might on Taiwan. At the same time, a Chinese offer for Taiwanese people. Will the island take the bait for a so-called peaceful reunification instead of possible war? Strategic ambiguity versus strategic clarity. What path would Trump choose if elected to deal with Beijing's threat of war? A top Chinese official ousted from his post as foreign minister, now under a national security investigation. What sparked it all? And an evil empire in the making. That's how Republican presidential candidate Pence just described China. China may not yet be an evil empire, but it's working hard to become one. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Beijing is upping pressure on Taiwan. The regime sent over 100 fighter jets near the island on Monday in just 24 hours. Almost half of the aircraft crossed the Taiwan Strait's median line, the unofficial divide between Taiwan and mainland China. Another 50 warplanes flew near the island on Tuesday. The looming threat involves more than just Taiwan. The island is critical for American security. Sitting on a chain of islands stretching from Japan to Malaysia, Taiwan is a key choke point. It blocks China from accessing the deep waters off the island's southeastern coast, an area Beijing could use to launch and conceal submarine-based nuclear attacks against the continental U.S. What's more, Taiwan also makes over 90 percent of the world's most advanced semiconductors or microchips, the same chips that are used in iPhones and cars, plus American fighter jets and defense systems. A Taiwanese military expert gives his take on what's driving the Chinese incursions on Taiwan. This abrupt large-scale interference from Chinese warplanes is targeting the U.S. and its allies' joint drills. Of course, Beijing is also using it as a form of military coercion to threaten both the U.S. and Taiwan. Beijing may have even bigger plans. The Chinese regime has been building airfields and stationing fighters and drones on its coastline about 100 miles from Taiwan. The island's annual defense report says Beijing is looking to gain superior air power over Taiwan. Besides the aggression toward Taiwan, Beijing is also taking up a seemingly more peaceful approach, taking up what experts call the carrots and stick strategy. China is coming out with a new plan to turn Fujian province into a model region to attract Taiwanese companies and residents. We will allow Taiwanese people access to permanent residential permits as they wish. Fujian sits right across from Taiwan. It also has deep cultural ties to the island. Beijing sees Taiwan as part of China and has vowed to take it under control by force if necessary. That's despite Taiwan never having been ruled by the Chinese Communist Party. Chinese officials are planning to make it easier for Taiwanese residents to travel to and invest in the Chinese province. The plan was met with muted response, Taiwan calling it one-sided wishful thinking. Keeping China guessing, former U.S. President Donald Trump spoke with NBC's Meet the Press over the weekend. When asked if he would provide military support to Taiwan if China invaded, here's what he said. I won't say, because you give away all your options. The Republican frontrunner told NBC he would not take the option of sending American troops to Taiwan off the table either if re-elected. 
The remarks come as Beijing continues to send fighter jets soaring near Taiwan. Now, a heated debate is raging in Washington over strategic ambiguity versus strategic clarity in defending the island. The President Biden, again, has four times publicly stated he doesn't really believe in this ambiguity. Biden has repeatedly said U.S. forces would defend Taiwan if China invades, though the White House walked back the statement. Back to the interview on NBC, Trump took aim at the U.S. automotive trade and manufacturing with China, saying U.S. jobs in the field will vanish within three years because all electric cars will be made in China. The auto workers are being sold down the river by their leadership, and their leadership should endorse Trump. Trump said U.S. car makers should reject the Biden administration's push toward electric vehicles. The news comes as the United Auto Workers Union threatens more strikes at more car plants. The union and car manufacturers are at a draw over pay and benefits for workers. Former Vice President Mike Pence pitching his strategy on communist China. His speech Monday comes amid surprise talks between Washington and Beijing. And today's Iris Tao has more. In a speech given at the Hudson Institute today, former Vice President Mike Pence vowed to recognize the Chinese Communist Party for what it is if he becomes the president. Watch. We will recognize the Chinese Communist Party for what it is, the greatest threat to our prosperity, security, and values on the face of the earth. China may not yet be an evil empire, but it's working hard to become one. That's as he laid out his strategy to counter Beijing, including by boosting funding for the U.S. military, encountering Beijing's intellectual property theft by limiting visas given to Chinese nationals, and also to counter China's influence through decoupling from China in essential industries. He also vowed to ban TikTok on day one and to ban Chinese companies from purchasing American farmland. Because some Republican candidates, including my former running mate, are abandoning the traditional conservative position of American leadership on the world stage and embracing a new and dangerous form of isolationism. I believe isolationism is just another word for appeasement on the world stage. But all this, he says, does not mean that the U.S. should isolate itself from China. And in fact, he used that point to take aim at some of the GOP candidates, including former President Donald Trump. But as Republican candidates are sounding hawkish on China, the Biden White House says it's trying to responsibly manage its relationship with China. This past weekend, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan met with China's Foreign Minister Wang Yi quietly in Europe. And just today, the State Secretary Antony Blinken also met with China's Vice President in New York during the silence of the U.N. General Assembly. And of course, all these meetings could be paving the way for President Biden to meet with China's Xi Jinping in the coming months. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. Bringing jobs back from China. That's the message from South Carolina Senator and 2024 presidential hopeful Tim Scott, highlighting his campaign strategy during a roundtable discussion. Here's what he said to local businesses and manufacturing companies in Nevada. We bring those jobs home from China and around the world and create high-tech manufacturing locations and factories here in America again with technology we can get it done. 
The South Carolina Republican has shifted to a Made in America plan for his 2024 campaign. That's after he repeatedly voted against it over his 12 years in Congress. Now, instead of exporting jobs to China, he's pledging to create 10 million jobs here in the U.S. According to the latest Fox News survey, 3% of Republican primary voters back Scott in the 2024 matchups. In comparison, 60% said they would support Donald Trump. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with top Chinese regime official Han Jin on Monday. That's on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly. Blinken has said face-to-face -face diplomacy is the best way to deal with areas of disagreement from the U.S. perspective and the best way to explore areas of cooperation with China. There's kind of this two-track strategy uh, that's out there, and we just don't seem to have made up our mind of what we actually want to achieve. The meeting marks the latest top-level exchange between the world's top two economic powers. Just one day after National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan met with top Chinese top diplomat Wang Yi. Wang is currently on a four-day trip to Russia. Talks in Moscow are focused on strengthening international cooperation between China and Russia. The meeting between the nation's top diplomats comes before an anticipated visit from Russian President Vladimir Putin to Beijing in the coming weeks. An extramarital affair, now a national security investigation. It's focused on former Chinese Foreign Minister Qin Gan. From July 2021 through January this year, he worked as China's top envoy to the United States. And according to the Wall Street Journal, he had an affair during that time. Now, Beijing wants to know if he gave out China's national security secrets in the process. Senior Chinese officials were briefed about the incident. Sources told the Wall Street Journal that the affair had resulted in the birth of a child in the U.S. Qing Gan was ousted from his foreign minister post in July after just half a year on the job. The decision followed a month-long disappearance from the public eye. Experts say that usually signals an internal investigation happening in the Chinese Communist Party. It means that he's cleaning house. She is very concerned with loyalty. And anybody who gives any measure or inkling that they could be a threat, he'll target them and remove them. So we're, we're seeing this model over and over again. Veteran diplomat Wang Yi stepped up to replace Qing as foreign minister. China's foreign ministry did not immediately respond to press requests for comment. Hunter Biden is on the offensive, arguing in a new lawsuit against the IRS over an alleged breach of his privacy. That's after he previously admitted an over $600,000 payout from a company linked to China, contradicting his dad's claims. NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards has more. Filed on Monday, the lawsuit alleges that whistleblower agents Gary Shapley and Joseph Ziegler repeatedly and intentionally shared Biden's private tax information. Specifically, it states that the two agents tried to smear the young Biden by making statements at more than 20 nationally televised interviews in violation of the Internal Revenue Code and without congressional oversight. In June, the House Ways and Means Committee voted to publish transcripts of the whistleblower's testimonies. These tax crimes cover an estimated 2.2 million in unreported tax on global income streams to Mr. Biden and his associates from Ukraine, Romania, and China. 
totaling 17.3 million from 2014 to 2019. Shapley and Ziegler testified in May. They testified that they faced various limitations during their investigation of Hunter's tax case. The lawsuit states that the agents didn't apply the same rights to Hunter as they did to every other American. Shapley's attorney says the lawsuit is an attempt to intimidate whistleblowers. We definitely aren't going to be intimidated by a frivolous attempt like this, and we hope that other whistleblowers who might potentially be considering coming forward won't be intimidated either. The IRS is not commenting on the lawsuit. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Next, a joint naval exercise is happening in the South China Sea. The Association of Southeast Asian Nations kicked off its first joint drill early Tuesday. All members are participating in the drill, largely aimed at countering China's maritime threat. Though the body's main focus is on economic development. All the exploration activities within the EEZ, or exclusive economic zone, are already regulated. One cannot enter the territory of a country on their own will. The five-day exercise is being held nearby the islands of Indonesia. China issued a new map last month, stoking maritime tensions in the area. The chart claims almost the entire South China Sea as Chinese territory, even more than Beijing's infamous Nine Dash Line. The area overlaps with waters that China's neighbors claim as their own. When it comes to the freedom of navigation activities, that is the right of every ship to cross the sea. At the same time, the U.S. is looking to expand ties with the association's members and counter China's assertiveness. The Biden administration lashed out at Beijing over the map controversy and what it called the false maritime claims. COVID-19 wasn't kind to wedding planners in China. Marriages in the country are traditionally elaborate, expensive affairs. But the industry, estimated at almost $500 billion, is now facing a bigger threat. A plunge in the number of couples willing to tie the knot. Here's the story. With the number of Chinese couples getting married in decline, scenes like this are becoming a rare sight. Less matrimony is a worrying trend for wedding planners in China, an industry estimated at almost $500 billion just three years ago. Yuan Jialiang ran a full-scale wedding planning business for almost a decade in Shanghai, before switching to wedding photography as demand for his services began to fall, and he hasn't looked back. In the process of switching from wedding planning to wedding photography, I started to realize that actually couples' demands for photography and videography will not change. China's wedding industry already hit a rough patch during the pandemic when many couples delayed their ceremonies. There were 6.8 million marriages across China last year, which is 800,000 fewer than in 2021 and the lowest since the government began publishing the data in 1986. Now, a bigger threat looms in couples less willing to spring for an all-out wedding. Ceremonies in China are traditionally elaborate, expensive affairs. But wedding planners report that couples who do go for it are spending less. This drop in marriage registrations will likely exacerbate the decline in births in China, already one of the fastest aging societies in the world. 
The whole environment has contributed to the fact that the wedding industry is not very prosperous now. I was probably hopeful for another big industry climax, but now I'm more worried than optimistic about the prospects. Um, COVID caused such a big impact on everybody's lives. As a market, we see an absolute downturn in spending. So all alongside our strategy have been niche, niche, niche niche. Uh, we don't want to flow with the broader market because we don't think that's in a good place to go. With high jobless rates and low household spending among the young and the middle class, Jewel Wong, who owns several stores in China selling designer wedding dresses, is staking the future of her company on wealthier clients that have weathered the economic downturn. Another big story to look out for, a powerful buzzword kicking up a storm once again. The term is dictator. If Putin were to win this war, what sign would that be for other dictators in the world? Like Xi, like the Chinese president. But the comment isn't a first. In June, U.S. President Joe Biden also referred to Communist China's leader Xi Jinping as a dictator and sparked fierce backlash from Beijing. Is the description accurate? And how does the unusual candor relate to recent tensions between the West and China? Stay tuned for more coming up tomorrow on China in Focus. Coming up in ever more aggressive China, now bolstering ties with major world adversaries from North Korea to Russia to Iran. As China exports its agenda with brand new tactics, what countermeasures does the U.S. have in place? And are we prepared enough to fight if a war broke out? To find out, we spoke to Gabriel Scheinman, the executive director of the Alexander Hamilton Society. More on that after the break, here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. As Beijing moves steadily closer to its allies in the third world, how does Washington handle its relations with hostile regimes? And with talks of a potential war with China on the horizon, is the U.S. prepared to fight? To discuss, we sat down with Gabriel Scheinman, the executive director of the Alexander Hamilton Society. Gabriel Scheinman, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Recently in the news a lot is these increasing ties between North Korea, Russia, and China. Given all that, how do you see the U.S.'s foreign policy changing or staying the same? I think it's concerning. Uh, we should not think that what happens in one theater is totally divorced or siloed from what happens in a different theater. I um, mean, we should look at the Eurasian uh, landmass as a single theater. And so just as we see the Russians increasingly dependent on and cooperating with the Chinese, and now oddly dependent on North Korea as well, given this presumed uh, search for more ammunition uh, to help it fight its war in Ukraine. It seems recently there's been a lot of diplomatic trips to China and in talks there, they're saying, oh, our approach to China at least isn't changing, but we're kind of keeping a lot of sanctions there and with Iran and North Korea and Russia, do you see any changes happening there? 
on the one hand, there's this continued engagement across the board, uh, while on the other hand, um, there are ways in which we've sought to try and uh, gain advantage in the relationship. And so obviously, uh, continuing back Ukraine and its war of self-defense against Russia, export controls uh, and other sanctions uh, against uh, Chinese entities to prevent them from getting their hands in some of our latest technology, um, as well as in Iran, is still trying to prevent their oil from getting on the market. And so there's kind of this two-track strategy uh, that's out there, and we just don't seem to have made up our mind of what we actually want to achieve. Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall is warning that the U.S. must be ready for a kind of war we have no modern experience with, adding that war is not inevitable. So what's different now? How has the definition of war changed in the past decades? Yeah, I mean, and he's not the only one. It seems like every week there's a new American uh, military or intelligence official that is making similar warnings. Uh, look, I, I think it's changed in two ways. One is kind of what I said before, back to the future. Uh, there's a concern that any uh, potential Chinese attack on Taiwan or war of the Taiwan Strait uh, would be the sort of um, mass casualty, uh, high intensity warfare that we're seeing in Ukraine that we used to see during World War II and for much of human history. And so on the one hand, it's being prepared uh, for high intensity uh, large casualty warfare. So that's one. Um, the second is that the type of war that we might see, and we're seeing some of this in Ukraine, might not be uh, of the exact same kind. It might not be one with tanks uh, and aircraft carriers and bombers. It might be one with sensors uh, and drones and other autonomous systems. There are recent articles or talks about irregular warfare and unrestricted warfare. So how should the U.S. approach this new field? In Western culture itself, we sort of think of war and peace as this on-off switch, that we are either uh, doing diplomacy or we are doing war, so forth. And that's actually just not how it's been for most of human history. Um, and we have some excellent work and evidence of this even recently of a kind of gray zone warfare or measures short of war, or active measures, as we saw uh, in the Cold War. Um, and so we have trouble with this. We have trouble understanding this. To a certain degree, uh, it is easier for the United States to both understand and plan for, let's say, a Chinese direct military attack on Taiwan. It is much more complicated, I think, for the United States to try and understand, well, what about a naval blockade? Uh, what about sowing disinformation? What about trying to uh, disrupt uh, unity and fighting power? Uh, what about uh, uh, boarding ships uh, under some vague commercial measures and all the things in between. China now has the biggest navy. It surpassed the U.S. So what is the fallout or impact of that if we were to end up in a kinetic war, say, potentially over Taiwan? The discrepancy is even uh, worse uh, than the way you kind of put it out. We need to think, we need to think about um, how to build what um, some members of Congress have called an anti-navy, uh, which is how do we put enough uh, missiles uh, and other uh, elements that will hold uh, their navy at risk, um, so that one now may seem to be advantage of theirs. But we need to we need for them to understand, and this is key to deterrence. Uh, we need for them to understand that um, their use of this or their deployment of this would actually put the entirety of what they have built uh, at risk. And indeed, well, Gabriel Scheinman, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. That's all for today's China In Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocusntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow.